Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson is with other municipal leaders in Ottawa right now at the AMO conference. He heard from Premier Doug Ford yesterday. We'll get his read on that. Also, Police Chief Eric Gert has extended an invitation to members of the 2SLGBTQ community to meet and try to reestablish lines of communication. And a large number of physicians learning about pharmaceutical products through representatives of pharma companies. The Center for Effective Practice says there's a better way. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now. Uh, I want to do a follow-up on a session we did yesterday with the Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. The Association of Municipalities of Ontario have an annual convention. This year it's in Ottawa. And invariably the uh, government of the day, the provincial government of the day, uh, attends this conference as well. And yesterday Premier Doug Ford addressed the assembled multitudes there and uh, was supposed to address, uh, well, a very contentious point, that being uh, significant cuts to health care in this province, especially with public health and with daycare. Uh, among all the other things that he has talked about. Well, when we talked with Councillor Ferguson yesterday, he said, and we were doing this kind of in a speculative mode because the Premier had not spoken at that time, but uh, Councillor Ferguson told us that uh, in some of the conversations he had, including with Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark, that there was going to be good news today, not doom and gloom. So we wanted to do a follow-up. Uh, Councillor Ferguson is uh, still there at the convention. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us his uh, take on what's going on. Lloyd, thanks for joining us again today. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on for a follow-up. Well, it was a great anticipation, of course, uh, when finally the, the Premier spoke, I guess, just before noon yesterday. Uh, I'll, I'll cut right to the quick here, Lloyd. Did you hear good news or bad news? Well, I, I'm optimistic in what I heard. You know, the devil's always in the details in these things because you just hear the very high level when the, the Premier or Minister speaks. And uh, But we certainly heard there's going to be some help with some transitional funding. So in 2020, we, are, we were expecting all these cuts to take place and... Uh, you know, he's not saying how much, but he says that there will be transitional funding to ease us in. So it looks like the cuts are still coming, but it's going to spread over a period of time rather than all at once and just whack us on the 2020 budget. Um, clearly, we got to get, uh, you know, I, I talked to Paul Johnson yesterday and and the um, information reports were pouring in, but it was still short on that, on, on uh, the net impact on public health. There was good news on, on uh, ambulances, on land ambulances, where both the Premier and the Minister of Health said there would be a 4% increase in 2019 for land ambulance, which we were uh, expecting from early reports that they were not going to, for example, uh, pick up the 50% cost, which is typical. The, the province pays half and the municipalities pay half for land ambulance. And uh, we added an ambulance last year because of all these code zeros, which is a very expensive thing to do because they not only need the vehicle, but you need 10 more paramedics. Well, it, it adds up to about a million dollars per unit, doesn't it? Correct. And and so um, it looks like we're going to get that 50%, and, and that was going to impact how our 2019 budget was going to come in. You know, the actual numbers were going to come in. And we had some forecasting from uh, our finance staff about this recently. So it looks like we'll be okay there. He also said there will be increases uh, to cover inflation in 2020 for land ambulances. So that could have a net net impact to uh, the taxpayers of Hamilton of about $2 million. And, and of course, nobody can criticize a government for trying to be efficient and cut costs, but it, it just is troubling when they do it on, they just transfer it to another level of government. Well, yeah, well, I want to talk to you about that, Lloyd, because there's, 
you know, there's, there's spin. I mean, let's cut right to the quick here. Politicians, especially federal and provincial governments, like to spin things and say, this is what we're doing, and boy, is this ever going to be great for you. Uh, technically, uh, the Ford government is reducing the costs of, of their government. We get that. You know, when you chop the, the amount of money that they have. But you and me as taxpayers are still going to pay for this. It's yeah, just, we'll, it's just we'll, going to be we'll on our property about. taxes now. Uh, so there is no saving to us. I might save 50 or 60 bucks on my provincial taxes, but my municipal taxes are going to go up as a result of this. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not even a saw-off many, many times. Well, it, it, it is going to be softened. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic about what he said. But, yeah, there, as, I, as I just mentioned, there's only one taxpayer in the province, and, and whether it comes out of your left pocket or your right pocket or the big pocket at the back for the federal government, um, there's still only one source of revenue. Well, but there's another element to that, whether it's the left pocket or the right pocket. If it's coming off your property tax base, we pay our property taxes with after-tax dollars. That's, that's your take-home pay. Uh, you know, the provincial tax you hardly ever see because it's taken off the check at, at source. And then they say, okay, uh, Lloyd, here's your money. And now the city comes along and says, okay, you got to pay your property taxes out of that. It, it, it's, it's, it is a more strenuous tax, and it's an onerous tax, and it's, it's a, a ridiculous tax, but it's what we're stuck with. Well, except you, you are taxed federally and provincially on, the, on your gross amount of your pay, and you're right. It is, there is source deductions on that, to, to, uh, so it's taken off your check and remitted by your employer directly to them, but, but you're still taxed on your full salary. Sure. And, uh, so, and, of course, this is the argument. We've got enough stresses of our own coming at us, and you know, we've got infrastructure that needs attention, and, and uh, you know, every department uh, is, is going to have inflationary increases. We're getting a lot of complaints about how slow our planning department is, and I'm sure they're going to be wanting more resources, too. So it's going to be an interesting budget debate. But back to yesterday, uh, I, I think what was interesting, uh, if, if you caught it in the uh, the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott's presentation, she says that they're now going to be funding public health, 70% province, 30% um, by the local municipality. And right now we're at 75%. They were originally forecasting Toronto was going to go to 50%, so it's quite a bit of relief there for Toronto, but there's still a 5% hit for us, the way I interpret what she said. Um, I did talk to our, our general manager yesterday on this, and he concurred that it, we, we are at uh, 75%, and it looks like we're going to drop back to 70%, but there will be some transitional help. So it may be spread over two or three years, and um, we'll find out about that when uh, um, the, the staff will do a presentation in, in late September on what these changes are that were announced yesterday. There's a... A, a, a discussion that needs to be ahead here about the challenges faced with you as well, uh, because the, the you know the sub headline here, and, and you talked about this yesterday, the speculation at that point was that to try to absorb this, uh, the city's probably going to have to find about ten million dollars in savings from someplace else. And, and by the way, that's only as a result of this program. That doesn't uh, take into account the other pressures that are going to be on you uh, with inflation and a number of other things that that are going to impact the budget as well. Uh, but some of these are mandated programs, so you know the, you have to do them regardless. It's the law, and you have to pay the price for it. You don't have a whole lot of wiggle room to find efficiencies, to use the word they love to use. No, well, fifty percent of our budget is is mandated programs, and, uh, and and there's a whole raft of them. You know, police is the big one, and uh, you know we have to comply with the Police Services Act, which is provincial legislation. And so we have control over about 50%. But clearly, in some areas, we're going to have to do some cuts because uh, uh, we just can't put through. Now, before yesterday's announcement, we were staring down about a 7% or 6.7% tax increase uh, in the first cut of the 2020 budget. 
Um, so, you know, this will this will take it down. The announcements yesterday. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic. And and uh, but we're going to have to do uh, some more cuts because these are imposed on us by the province, and they're not mandatory province uh, programs. We got to look at exiting them because otherwise the province is simply going to sit there and say, "Hey, look at." I told you they had lots of money. They covered it anyway. And look at the savings we got for you. And it'd be totally transparent to the people who are impacted by this. And so we're going to have some debates about this when we start uh, debate on the 2020 budget. Well, you've seen this as, as a former chair of the Police Services Board. Uh, anytime there's a contract negotiation, and I don't, if it has to go to arbitration, invariably they always say the city can get as much money as they want, just tax the citizens. Uh, and they look at that as a revenue source. And you, as, a, as an elected official, are saying it's it's not that easy. You can't just say, okay, we're going to raise taxes again, because we're, in some cases, past the breaking point. And you, you hear about that from residents all the time. Well, yeah, and of course, arbitrators have clearly stated, oh, they understand what the city's saying, and they understand their woes, but you just tax for it. And, and we have a number of employees that are um, considered essential services, police, fire, paramedics, uh, nurses in our nursing homes. So... Um, we're, and what they do, they just look at comparators around the province. What's the average increase around the province of contracts that settled? That's what you're going to pay. I, I found that out during my five years in the police services board, and that's why it's probably better to uh, work on language and, and uh, you know, in, in the police services board, during our collective agreement in order to avoid having these big debates is that we'll get the, our first-class constables number three in the province which is where we've been for, for a long, long, long time. And unless you do that, they're simply going to take you to arbitration. We're able to work on other language issues if we can negotiate a deal. But there are going to be impacts to this. I mean, when you say defined efficiencies, uh, that could be staff cuts, but there's going to be a service reduction. You know, the user fees to get to rent ice or to rent a soccer pitch for a season, probably going to see a price increase. Uh, yeah. We've already talked to Paul Johnson about the impact this is going to have on McCassell Lodge and Wentworth Lodge. Uh, and, you know, some of the maintenance that usually gets done may not get done. There could be staff cuts there, which means those frail and elderly people that are residents in those places may have to wait a little bit longer when their ca- the call bell goes off because there's just not enough staff going around. So there, there are human impacts to this and human results to this. There are. Um, and we're, a big part of our job, Bill, is, is doing the balancing act. And, uh, you know, I don't get the, the nickname on council's frugal Fergie for nothing because we're always, you know, I'm always watching costs. But on the other hand, uh, we have a duty to make sure our marginalized are, are, are protected and uh, not forced out on the street. And, and we've made significant investments in the city recently in housing. Um, you know, we still have some 7,000 people on the wait list for housing. And and so it's it's going to be an ongoing task. But I, I think we all knew this was coming when the Conservatives got elected because they're pretty clear about it during their campaign. But yesterday, that's why I'm cautious, cautiously optimistic. Uh, there was some good news in it for us also because, uh, as the Premier said right at the start, we're listening. And uh, But he still has his mandate to deal with this $14 billion deficit that they're staring down. But don't just shift it to a different group and for the same taxpayer. That's that's my issue. Well, as I mentioned in my commentary at eight ten this morning, I mean this is uh, this is the sequel uh, to downloading. I mean we saw this with the Harris government, uh, you know, where they say, "Hey, we're saving money." You're not really. You're just making us pay for that out of a different source, as you say, a different pocket. 
uh, and that's not really saving the taxpayers anything. It's just making their books look better and uh, and putting a lot more pressure on. Uh, we, you, well, we talk about the Hamilton municipality, but everybody's going to have to pay a price for this at some point, Lloyd. Just about every municipality. I'm sure you talked with some of the other delegates yesterday after you heard what you heard, and uh, it's it's going to be challenging for everyone. Well, an interesting stat he came out with yesterday was that you may recall about two months ago. He says he'd make some funds available for any municipality that want to hire an efficiency expert to come in and go through our budget line by line and tell us where we become more efficient. Yeah. And it was interesting, 90% of the municipalities took advantage of that, including Hamilton. We passed a resolution uh, suggesting that we bring uh, this expert in, and it was supported by our finance staff to bring the experts in. He went to the school boards, and there's uh, just over 70 school boards in the province, and only two have taken advantage of that. And and that's an interesting analogy that we're going to have to drill down on also, uh, because, um, you know, we, we keep hearing about the deficits in school board budgets across the province and how they want to sell part of Ancaster High School land off in order to fix uh, fix up schools in the inner city. And uh, why aren't they looking for these um this money is available from the province to bring in efficiency experts to see where they can find some, some, some waste or some areas that we can save. But the school boards, interestingly, didn't take advantage of that. Yeah, I listen. I saw that comment from the premier yesterday too, and that's a question obviously that needs to be asked of the the boards of education uh, yeah. as to why they didn't partake in this. And and there, I, I wouldn't want to speculate. There could be some politics involved in this. Who knows? But. But the fact of the matter is, 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 you know, you get an opportunity like that, you outside eyes to look and see, okay, is there a thing we can do better here? You, you take it, and I'm glad the city did. Yeah, and, and um, of course, we didn't hear about any of the cuts to child care. That wasn't in the speech, but uh, when Andrea Horvath spoke, and, and of course her job is to be a critic, but um, when she spoke, she talked about cuts to child care and um We'll have to get the details and what that means to us also, because uh, when when the premier and the minister of health spoke, uh, the, that wasn't touched on. So, are, are you as as you leave Ottawa and head back here and have to find out just how this is going to apply, uh, and and obviously get some input from your council colleagues on this situation here? Are we better off than we were ten days ago? Absolutely, absolutely. Are, are we back to where we were a year ago? No. And, and so that's what we got to digest. And you start the budget process you mentioned to us yesterday. You're st- actually starting the, the budget for 2020 pretty soon, aren't you? Oh, yeah, they're well underway. We'll, we'll go into... Oh, I know staff have already started to crunch numbers. Oh, yeah. Oh, staff started in June. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll be going into capital budget in, in mid-November. Then we'll go into the water budget, or what's called the rate budget, in December. And then get into the operation budget early in the new year. And we generally have it wrapped up by the end of March. Well, and that's where the numbers will really uh, come forward here. I mean, like I say, governments like to talk in percentages, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we talked about the human cost, and we've talked about the impact it's going to have on, on citizens. And uh, that's where you guys uh, come in, because you're the ones that actually have to make that determination and then try to, well, either lessen the impact or whatever you can do in situations like that. It's going to be a tough year, Lloyd. It is going to be a tough year, and we knew that was coming. I mean, that was the discussion last week at council. It's going to be a tough budget year. So I think we're mentally preparing ourselves for that. But it's just uh, what services are we going to cut and what are we going to keep and how are we going to fund them and how this transitional funding will will soften that a bit. Lloyd, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson speaking to us from Ottawa today, where he's there for the Association of Municipalities of Ontario Convention. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Graham Crawford, the reigning citizen of the year, of course, and, and uh, citizen uh, at large who's uh, been heavily involved in this community for many, many years, apparently will be meeting with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert uh, as a member of that uh, 2SLBGQ committee, uh, as well as uh, Jasper Dillon, who is the new community liaison officer for uh, Hamilton Police Services, uh, which is uh, surprising to some people because there was an earlier meeting, you may recall, that Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger called. Uh, Graham was invited to that and declined, as many other people in the community did. So what's changed? Well, let's uh, get Graham Crawford on from History and Heritage and, of course, Active City Residents as he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Graham. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing fine. Thanks. Listen, you and I had extensive discussions about what happened uh, in the light of Pride Week and, of course, and of uh, the initial uh, demonstrations that were going on in front of City Hall and the reaction, or as some would call non-reaction, by Hamilton Police Services and some members of City Council. Uh, here we are today uh, with seemingly a different approach to this. What's changed for you? Well, I just I want to clarify one thing. I have not yet uh, agreed to attend the meeting. But okay. Not entirely wrong, though, Bill, in terms of direction. Uh, I, you know, as I said to you, I think when we we talked before, at some point meetings have to take place, um, and I think maybe this is one of them. So I'm I'm certainly leaning towards. Uh, accepting the invitation, as I believe others are as well from the LGBTQ plus community who have been invited. Well, you call, you you copied me on the initial email, I guess, yeah, that, that you got. Yeah. Uh, and what the, one of the concerns, among many, I'm sure, that, uh, that you raised at that time, was you didn't know who else was going to be invited to this thing. Uh, you didn't know if it was going to be you and the chief and, and, and the new officer, the community liaison officer, or anybody else. Have you got any more information about that? Yeah, yeah. So what happened was, uh, oddly enough, Friday afternoon, last Friday afternoon at 2.20, I received the invitation. It was pretty short, um, not all that clear as to, you know, who was going to be there, what was the agenda, what was the purpose, what were the outcomes. Uh, we didn't even have a location. It just said, here are two possible times, uh, one on Tuesday afternoon, uh, this afternoon, literally, and uh, the other Thursday. And remember, this is Friday at 2.20. So mm-hmm. I wrote back immediately and said, thanks for inviting me. I have a, some questions just to help me understand if this is the kind of meeting I should go to. And those questions were pretty basic, Bill. You know, they were like, who's being invited? Like you just said, uh, what's the, you know, uh, who else is going to be there from HPS? Who's going to facilitate? What's the agenda? And it, unfortunately, it took 72 hours to get any response but I did get a response, and uh, the email that I received yesterday at 3 o'clock uh, provided answers to those nine questions that I put forward. Uh, can you share that information with us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, for example, um, the uh, there is an agenda, although it's, it's not much of an agenda. It's basically just a list of single words. Um, but... Here's, the clear, here's what they said the purpose of the meeting is. The sole purpose of the meeting, and I'm quoting, by the way, the sole purpose of the meeting is for the police to listen firsthand to community concerns and work together in order to move forward towards a better place. Please know that this is only the starting point of many conversations. So, fair enough, uh, except, you know, one of the challenges I have, Bill, to be perfectly honest with that kind of phrasing is it's as if we have not been talking. It's as if we have not been telling the police what our concerns are. Uh, there was a big community meeting held in council chambers at which um, the deputy chief was present. 
and the, the community spoke at length about what their concerns were. And he said to the media that he was listening and prepared to learn. Uh, there have been deputations at the Hamilton Police Services Board that I attended, and I listened to those delegations. They were very clear, very articulate. So it, it bothers me just slightly. I mean, I'm not going to get hung up on this, but to, to position this as if nobody's been talking and nobody's been listening, but now we can start, is not a, is a non-starter for me. But I mean, we'll make that clear if we go to the meeting. That um, I would like to have a sense for what the police have already heard and observed and taken from all, all the, the sharing of information so far. And we can share lots more information, but... You know, Bill, the, the, the mayor had a meeting, as you know, yeah. which I and you did say that I refused to go to because there were certain preconditions that I just wanted to, I thought were fair, and we didn't get any of them. Well, I mean, I want to go back to a conversation you and I had about that Yeah, uh, when you were here in studio with me. Uh, and you said at the time when you declined the, the mayor's invitation, and and this was, of course, just a couple of days after some of the, the confrontational meetings that you just talked about, uh, you said, look, it, things have to be said and things have to be done before we can start to, to build that. Uh, that was then, and, and I think a lot of people agreed with what you were saying at that time. Have any of those things been said and done in your mind to, to try to start to at least build these bridges again? Not by the mayor, no. Although, uh, as you know, uh, the mayor did show up for a, I mean, a very short while uh, to a Saturday rally, not this past Saturday, but the one before, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. But that's kind of it. Uh, that meeting that he held, those of us who did not go, and, and therefore also the general public, have no idea what was discussed at the meeting. I was told by Deidre Pike, the mayor's advisor, that no notes were taken. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess you can meet with six people at a time for the rest of your life, but at some point you've got to share information. And that has not happened. Nothing has come out of the mayor's office since that meeting. Um, and so that's not a good thing. And I would hope that uh, Chief Gert and the Hamilton Police Service don't take the same approach and that what they do do as a result of this upcoming meeting uh, is that things that are discussed, uh, actions or commitments that are made, uh, will be shared with the, with, uh, the community and uh, the general public. It's just a basic condition, Bill, if you're in this kind of community, community engagement process. Otherwise, you, you're doing this at you know, 10, 12 people at a time. You mentioned that uh, it's it's a, a skeleton-like agenda here, just a couple of words, which I guess are going to be topics uh, to be expanded upon. Uh, i got to assume, though, Graham, that you've got an agenda, at least in your mind, if you're going to sit down with the chief. There's a few questions I know that you've raised on our program over the last couple of weeks uh, that, uh, from what you're telling me, you still have not received answers for, and that's about police conduct, police policy, uh, protocols, things of this nature, dating all the way back to the to the incident, of course, in Gage Park, but subsequent incidents at Hamilton City Hall. Uh, there's uh, some questions being raised uh, in this community, uh, the 2SLGBTQ community, about police attitudes uh, toward that community. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of work needs to be done here. There is indeed, Bill. You raise a really good point. This, although it's pitched to us by the Hamilton Police Service and officially Chief Gert, uh, making it sound like it's a one-way meeting, i.e., we'll, we'll sit and listen to you, uh, this has to be a two-way conversation. We have to also be allowed to ask questions and to hear answers. Um, and we, the police cannot hide behind 
you know, well, we can't discuss tactics or open investigations or any of that stuff. Uh, otherwise, what's the point? We, we've done a lot of talking already, and sure, there's more to say, and we'll say it. But it is critical that the Hamilton Police Service view this as a two-way conversation. You know, questions get asked and answers are expected, because if they want that from us, we have a right to expect it from them. I, I will add one thing, too, which surprised me. Uh, Deidre Pike is uh, listed uh, as the facilitator of this upcoming meeting with the chief, and I, I don't quite get that. Um, you know, she is the mayor's advisor. She's not Chief Gert's advisor. I don't know why she's been selected to facilitate this meeting as well. She does have a history, a paid history, uh, with the Hamilton Police Service. They have hired her in the past for her services. Um, I'm a little concerned about neutrality here and, and or perceived neutrality of the facilitator. But when you say that, though, Graham, there's an insinuation that there's there are sides here. Um, you know, there's the there's it's them versus us in situations like this, and I understand that there's some some pretty strong feelings in in, in that regard uh, with some members of the community. I get that, but at, at the same time, uh, you know, we've got to get this sense of community once again, the greater community that is. And uh, I I don't know if we're there to get to to have that discussion to make that happen. I mean, w- you've had discussions. I guess was it through email. Uh, I, w- I assume with uh, Ms. Dillon, of course, the community liaison officer. You haven't talked to the chief, have you? No, I haven't, nor have I spoken with, uh, with Ms. Dillon either. Uh, I've, the, there have been some emails, uh, but very little, actually, by way of content. Uh, I was promised, you know, she wanted to, to uh, rather than respond to my questions, the original uh, intent was she wanted to have coffee with me. And I said, I just want answers to some basic questions. I mean, these are not trap questions. They're, they're straight-ahead, upfront questions, and eventually I got the answers, as I say, 72 hours later. Um, you know, Bill, it, it, it's, I take your point, and I do agree. We've got to move on. We have to find or create a path forward. Uh, we can't just keep shouting at each other. And I said that to you before in the past. Yes, you and, have. You know, we're there, I believe. But, Bill, you know, talk to any politician. They know the trick of sending stuff out at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and then disappearing for the weekend. You know, I don't think that's good form. Uh, and to wait 72 hours for some basic answers to basic questions, I think is unprofessional. So, you know, if we want to talk about finding the path forward, fair enough. But Chief Gerd needs to wear some of this, too. I mean, there's, there's a professional way to do this. There's a sincere way of doing this. And I'm very likely going to attend that meeting and, and do my very best to attend it with an open mind. Do you I get want. the sense that they are ready to talk about some of the issues that you've raised? No, I don't. But, I, but I, I, look, Bill, I'd be happy to be wrong, and I'd love to, to speak with you and tell you and your listeners I was wrong if that isn't the case. But I'm very worried that this is being set up as, you know, let's flip chart your feelings and we'll sit and listen. It's like you know what we're past that. It's time to share. Well, and it's and I understand the need for some answers to some of these questions, and I also understand. Well, I understand the answer the police services are giving you. This yes, it's of course it would be silly for them to actually to uh, to actually expose the tactics that they use in situations like this because that obviously gives ammunition to to the people that want to cause these insurrections. I get that, but the discussion from what I'm hearing from you, Graham, is not what they will do. It's what they have done. 
what did they do? Let's talk about you know how you did. Th- why did you do this? Uh, and and the impact that it had. Uh, you know, in other words, we're looking in the rearview mirror right now to try to get some answers, not looking ahead. Well, I think the only way you can look ahead is to better understand what did happen and yeah. why. You said it. Why? Why did this happen? Why did you make these decisions? Help us understand, because that informs how how you proceed. It, it's you can't pretend this stuff didn't happen. Uh, you can't pretend that the chief didn't sit across from you in that studio and say, "Hey, you know, if the if the LGBTQ plus community had made us feel a little more welcome, we might have responded differently." Uh, the fact is that is what he said, and we need to talk about that stuff. And the chief needs to speak openly about it because I'll I promise I'll commit to him. I'll be as open with him so long as he's open with me. And that's okay. And then that path forward will emerge, Bill. It will. But we can't pretend this stuff didn't happen. Um, We can't pretend that the police and others, and council, for example, keep talking about, you know, the two sides of this, this debate. I mean, simple point, Bill. You know what we used to call people who fought against fascists in the past? We called them heroes. We never said of our heroes, they were just one of two sides. You know, our fathers, our grandfathers, this is like, this is serious stuff. If anybody is paying attention and reading articles, this, this white supremacist stuff, this fascist stuff is very real. Don't think, and unfortunately people seem to want to, to only talk about, um, you know, the, the anarchists. Let's blame everything on the anarchists. Uh, Bill, it's a complex brew here, and we need to spend some time listening, sharing, and uh, on both sides. And well, and a candid conversation. It's a candid conversation. You're absolutely right. I don't think we've had that yet. It's we are either talking to them or they're talking. Well, that's right. We're talking at them or they're talking at us. I, I think we can all agree that's largely what has happened. That has to start to shift or unfreeze. But it takes both sides to do that. And when this meeting gets positioned as, we'll listen, you talk, I say, nah, you know, I think we need, we're, we're past that. We can have a better meeting if we both share. Well, because the, the way you're describing what you'd like to see happen here uh, with input from both sides, uh, in other words, you're, you're, you're putting the pressure on both sides to say, okay, now you've got to talk. You got, you're not just going to sit back and listen because yeah, everybody wants to get some answers here. And that, that dialogue's got to happen. Now, you mentioned that you were given two potential dates. Obviously, I don't assume you're going today, this afternoon. <laughs> no. Uh, it's, does that mean the meeting is on Thursday, then? Uh, well, the, the the other meeting date that they've given us is uh, August 29th. Oh, I see. Yeah, 29th. Um, now, I also, and I will mention this, Bill. In, the, in that invitation, uh, both meeting times were sort of like one in the afternoon and two in the afternoon. And as as I pushed back and said, well, you know, some people work, and uh, what are they supposed to do? Take a day off in order to t- attend a meeting at a at a location they don't yet know. Um, so they switched it. Uh, to their credit, they they agreed. They switched it to a six p.m. start, so people can go after they finish work. Um, they've also said so again to their credit. They won't be wearing uniforms because. And I know some people who may be listening think, "What's the big deal with uniforms?" Well, you know, if, if you're part, part of a group um, who has been uh, harassed and challenged by police officers, and that has happened, um, uniforms are not necessarily, they don't necessarily make you feel safe. 
So it's just easier. It's more neutral. They're also moving it to a neutral site. It's not going to be at police headquarters. These are all good things. These are all good concessions. Well, the fact that the fact that they're not going to wear uniforms is an indication that they are listening to what you're saying. Bill, absolutely. And as I said, to their credit. So I'm not dismissing this. I'm not standing here outraged. I'm, I'm really wanting to try to move forward, but I want to move forward fairly. And I mean fairly. I mean both sides. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know I, I can be fairly strident about certain things I believe in, especially when we're dealing with, with hate in, in our lovely city and our institutional you know, uh, positions against hate. Uh, you know, we need to be very clear about those things. Um, I, this could be a breakthrough meeting. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, what I do know, Bill, and you're, you're right, you said it off the top, if we don't meet, we don't go anywhere. Uh, but there are certain conditions that just have to be in place to make a meeting productive. Just about out of time here. Do you know who else has been invited? Uh, I do understand that the... Um, uh, I don't want you to breach any confidentiality. No, 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 but no I don't, and I don't think they would. They would if, if I felt that was a concern, I wouldn't wouldn't mention it. I understand that the Pride Committee has been invited, and I understand that the uh, uh, City of Hamilton's uh, LGBTQ plus advisory committee has been invited. I, I think I think they are meeting. In fact, that advisory committee I think has a meeting tonight, and I believe that they will be making the decision as to whether or not they attend tonight. But it's being discussed, and no one is, is saying no out of hand, including me. Well, I'm not expecting, nor should anybody expect a eureka moment uh, if, in fact, this meeting <laughs> takes place. No. But we're looking for, for first steps here. And, and, and to, you know, there's, there's, there's been a breach of confidentiality, and, and that's regrettable for the entire community. And we've, we've got to build that up again. And that's it's only going to happen if, there's, if they start building it from both sides. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and you know, as you know, Bill, uh, counselors are starting to come out to the Saturday rallies. Um, that's a big show of support. It's a change. That's a shift. And it's a shift that people have noticed. And it helps us to, to also feel be more flexible and uh, to, you know, look at opportunities to find that path forward. And, and I want counselors to understand it actually matters. Graham, we'll stay in touch uh, with fingers crossed. I know that sounds like a cliche, but uh, we've, we've got to make some progress, and hopefully this, this will be one of those steps that gets it going. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, I'm happy to cross my fingers. You betcha. Okay. Talk soon, Graham. Thanks. Bye-bye. Graham Crawford. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a, a great idea that I, I think we could all benefit from. Of course, because at some point we all have to access the healthcare system. Family physicians and nurse practitioners, the primary caregivers, are the front line in today's healthcare system. But keeping pace with, well, things like new technologies, uh, new drugs, uh, treatments, uh, can be overwhelming. And I'm sure if uh, they've graduated from medical school or whatever training they've had uh, in the not-too-distant past, uh, they might be attuned to some of the newer things that are influenced, but if not, things like opioid addiction, uh, uh, mental health disorders, a number of things like this. So how do they how do they school themselves on this while at the same time trying to maintain a practice? Well, there's an organization right now called the Center for Effective Practice, which is trying to help physicians and nurse practitioners do that. Uh, Tupper Bean is the co-founder and executive director, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about this. Tupper, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. This I, I read the pricey for this the other day. This is uh, just an incredible idea. I, I got to ask you, as a co-founder, how did you guys come up with this concept? Well, it's, uh, 
it's not our concept. It was pioneered in uh, in the states, actually, in the eighties, when a bunch of researchers started asking themselves how uh, drug companies and other groups start uh, were so good at influencing physicians, and what was the actual process of influencing physician behavior. And they started to unpack it, and as they did, they realized that there was an opportunity to provide uh, really good, unbiased, evidence-based care to physicians. Well, what part of the reason for that, and, you know, as I talk to physicians, I've been fortunate enough to know many of them, you're right, they get this information from the reps. Well, the reps are salespeople. Uh, and with all due respect, salespeople are wonderful, and I, I get that. But I, you're not really necessarily getting an objective observation or an objective analysis of what this medication is, uh, the upside or the downside. It's, it's kind of nice to have a different set of eyes on it, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. It, you know, we're not anti-pharma, and the sales reps that are out there, I think, uh, have an important role. But they're really focused on their own company's products and what they have to offer. And what we realize is there's an opportunity to really um, frame the big picture and the alternatives that are available to physicians. So this is this is really an information source for physicians, and an, uh, as I say, another set of eyes. Uh, it goes without saying; these are busy people. Uh, you know, most of them have huge practices these days, uh, and uh, the the pressure to be able to to keep up with things, I guess, has got to be enormous. Yeah, it is, and it's a real issue. In fact, I think the problem is getting worse. There's more and more research and information coming out, and physicians have a hard time, A, keeping up with it, B, going to education and, and finding good places to be educated, and C, uh, there's another issue on who to trust. So how do they actually uh, determine who's trustworthy in the system and who they're going to listen to? I can remember having a conversation uh, that was probably about 15, 20 years ago now, uh, with another uh, number of physicians that were concerned about the way things were evolving. And and, and this, I guess, was just around the dawn of, of herbal medicines and, and holistic uh, treatments for, for some conditions. And a lot of doctors I talked to, off the record, were saying, we don't know much about this, we don't know anything about this, depending on who you were talking to. Uh, and they're too busy to actually say, well, I can't go back to school to do this. So, you know, you've they've got to be awfully frustrated. But you seem to offer a vehicle here for them to say, okay, let's step back a little bit and we can help you to, to get that kind of information. So, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that's changed in the last, uh, I'd say, you know, several years, 10 years or so, is patients are becoming more informed and, and are taking, which is a good thing, more responsibility for their health, but they have more information, more ideas about what might work for them, and physicians have to be ready for those conversations. Um, so if you're going to talk about chronic pain or opioids, you have to be aware that the patients are also in the mix and they're looking for uh, other solutions and the physician has to navigate not just the evidence, but the conversations and the patients that they're seeing in order to give them the best uh, care that they can. Well, let's face it. Everybody Googles everything now, don't they, Tepper? I mean, right. <laughs> before you go to the doctor, you think, about this. it hurts here. I, what happens if I've got a pain <laughs> in my uh, So, And the first question you're going to ask is, well, you know, Google says it was such and such. And, and right. so right off the bat, the doctor is uh, not necessarily on the defensive, but I mean, you know, they, they, they've got to sometimes dispel some of that information at the same time, but they've got to be knowledgeable themselves to be able to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the couple of things that that I wanted to ask you about because I know that the, we featured uh, some of the things you talked about opioids, of course, and and the, the the scourge that that's causing these days, and the role the doctors and, and uh, nurse practitioners can play in this. Uh, there are some other things too that uh, these are recent uh, laws that have come into play, which of course have had a direct impact on on, on the medical profession. Uh, one is the assisted dying law, and, and of course yes. the other is the legalization of cannabis. Uh, unless you graduated from medical school last year, uh, you don't know 
anything about these because this is brand new. It's new to all of us. It's a new law. Both of them are new laws. Uh, and again, physicians have to be schooled on this, and they have to be able to understand exactly what the ramifications of the legalization and the law themselves are, but also the ramifications on, on their patients. Absolutely. And those are two great examples of how the regulatory environment has changed. So it's not just the evidence around the research, it's more about the laws and, and how the physicians and their patients have to navigate the system as it changes, uh, you know, right in front of them. Well, and, and I know that's a discussion that's that's happening right now between a number of physicians and their patients. Uh, we talked about pain management. We've talked about opioids and, and the problems that can occur because of that. Uh, is cannabis an alternative, a, a viable alternative? Is it, uh, you know, have, have we done enough research on these? These are all questions everybody's asking these days, and they're going to go ask their doctor. That's right. That's right. In fact, you can't. We do a lot of work in the, in the field of opioids, and you can't talk about opioids without talking about marijuana. It comes up, patients bring it up, they're interested in, obviously they've got pain issues that they want to deal with. So the physicians have to be ready to respond, not just around what works and what doesn't, but what are the risks and how do they have those conversations with patients about being informed about the risks of those uh, alternatives. Well, and, and look, at we're all learning, aren't we, ever since the legalization. I mean, you know, uh, hemp oil as opposed to marijuana, there are two different yeah. impacts that it can have on the body. And I've talked to patients that have used this that are dealing with chronic pain, uh, and they swear by this stuff. But uh, it's 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 still the, out there, and the medical profession is still learning about this and still trying to ascertain exactly what they can say about this and what they can do with it. You're right. In some ways, the you know the laws have been passed, and and in some ways, the research is still coming. So there's still a lot of answers that people are looking for in terms of how effective and safe uh, you know these different products can be. Um, but as an organization, we try to be as practical as we can. We're there to help the physician navigate these issues. It's not about judging or having an opinion on whether uh, one thing is good or not. It's really about what the evidence says and how physicians can navigate with their patients. These, uh, you know, they're they're difficult subjects to deal with. They are. There's a, a, an innovation that's happening here, and I'm I'm glad to see so many doctors and nurse practitioners are are, are understanding this. Uh, it's not just about knowing medication and knowing diseases and knowing you know what hurts and how you can heal it, etc. Uh, doctors and nurse practitioners almost have to be social workers now too, because of some of the other impacts, things like poverty and uh, uh, things of that nature that that do affect health. We know that now to be true. That's not speculation at this stage, uh, and, and that's another aspect of of, of uh, practicing medicine right now. That that's uh, well has to be part of their practice. Yes, you're right, and in some ways you mentioned it well that the you know physicians and nurse practitioners are the frontline workers for. Uh, for patients across the province, and being aware of some of these issues is very important. You know, living in poverty is an actual risk factor. Your, your, the chances of developing chronic diseases and and uh, some mental health conditions actually increases if you're living in poverty. So, if providers can be aware of that, they can screen and uh, and uh, you know uh, attend to their patients differently based on that new knowledge, and that's important. Let's talk about the impact that your organization is having and, and, and uh, the, the feedback you're getting from doctors on this as you go through this process. Uh, are, 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 first of all, is the medical community at large aware of what you offer and what you can do for, for the uh, physicians and, and the nurse practitioners? Well, we're trying. They are. I would say in general at large, uh, they are aware. We've had very, very strong uh, support for what we do. Having said that, you've already mentioned you. Uh, Physicians and nurse practitioners are very, very busy. They've got their heads down doing work. And so it takes some time to get out there and to get your, your name known. And, and as I said, trust is important. So it takes time to develop a, um, 
um, a brand, if you will, that's trustworthy. But we are getting lots of support, and I think providers really feel like this is something that they value. And uh, you know, because it's convenient, it's in their office, it's 20 minutes. Um, and it's focused on their needs, that really makes a difference to them. Well, look, at, I'm looking at some stats here. You guys are not sitting at budget waiting for the phone to ring, are you? Oh, for no. 3,500 primary care meetings already, stakeholder organizations, you're going out there in the community. You're making sure that they hear about it. Well, you're right. Uh, you're right. It has, been, it has been amazing, the support and the demand. But having said that, there are you know, 11,000 family physicians in the province that have a comprehensive practice. So it's a big number. Uh, uh, almost half the doctors in Ontario are family doctors. And so there's a large audience to reach out there. And as you can imagine, they're all over. So every small community uh, has, you know, or you know, often has a, a family physician. And it takes uh, an enormous amount of effort to reach those people and to get out there and see them. When you do reach them and you have these these meetings, whether it's uh, the primary care meetings or some of the other ones that you've had in in the past, uh, what, what kind of feedback are you getting? Are, are physicians coming forward and saying, yeah, I, I need your help, I need to find out about this, this, and this? I mean, th- there's got to be, I would think, a level of frustration with some of them, Tupper, to say, look, we just don't have enough hours in the day to, to do the research and at the same time the practice. Right. So I, I, uh, you've hit upon something I think is very important. At the beginning, actually, most of the physicians are quite skeptical. They don't know who we are. They, you know, we spend a lot of time saying that we're an independent organization and we don't have any commercial uh, bias or conflicts of interest. But at the beginning, there's some skepticism. And as that skepticism diminishes and trust builds, then they become more interested in not just the evidence, but how do I make this real for my patients? What are the tips and tricks or the ways that I can actually put this into practice for my patients and make my life a little bit easier? You know, the truth is that chronic pain, for example, is a very hard difficult uh, clinical condition to deal with. And it, you know, many physicians uh, spend a lot of time on it. And if you can make their lives a bit easier or help them do something a little faster, that's a huge uh, benefit for them. Well, and that's all part of the educational process. I mean, in past generations, chronic pain simply meant just, okay, more painkillers, more painkillers, more And then we understand, first of all, there's the, the, the severe risk of addiction. But everything that you put into your body, of course, is going to have an impact on your kidneys, your liver, whatever else, your stomach. It could be a number of different things like that. And I know you're going to learn some of that stuff as you go through your medical training for, as a physician or as a, as a nurse practitioner. But it's, it's, this is evolving. I mean, the stuff that you, you guys were talking about a year ago is probably irrelevant now because of the, some of the new innovations that have happened. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's, uh, we're seeing that in front of our, you know, right in front of our eyes. The, the researchers, research is coming out so fast, it's so hard to stay on top of it. And what was best practice 10 years ago is no longer best practice today. So how do you actually, uh, how do you stay on top of it and continue to be uh, practicing at a current level of uh, confidence and evidence? Where do you get your information? I mean, as we say, this is ever-changing. I mean, there's probably two or three new innovations have happened just since you and I started talking this morning. Uh, but <laughs> you, you guys are really, you have to be on your game. Yeah, we have a whole team that does, uh, that searches through uh, medical evidence and literature, um, and that's the first part of our process. The second one is we actually involve doctors from across the province in the design of our tools and our, and our key messages. So it's not just the evidence, it's what's relevant to doctors, how is it practical to them, what does it mean to them. I think that's a major piece of what we do is that we have uh, physician involvement and practitioners too right from the beginning. So you don't just have a template and say, okay, we're going to do this here and this here and the same thing here and here. You're, you're evolving all the time too based on what you're hearing from and the feedback especially that you're hearing from doctors. Yeah, I, w- I wish it was that simple, but we don't. We try to... <laughs> 
to develop a template, and it's difficult to do it because it's different for every topic, and uh, the evidence is changing all the time. One of the things we we do do is uh, continuously searching for new stuff that comes out. So our tools are constantly updated, and we have a team that's actually sifting through the research to make sure that we're staying on top of it and everything is, is current. It, you know, if a doctor can't trust us to be current, then we really don't have uh, as much value to offer them. How can we uh, get spread the word about this? In other words, for physicians, uh, family physicians, uh, friends of, and family of physicians uh, that are listening to our conversation right now to say, you know what, I, this is not a bad idea. Uh, how can they get a hold of you? Well, we, that's a great question. We have a uh, website is uh, cep.health is our website, and there's a section there that you can actually uh, um, visit and uh, either get more information or sign up for a visit if you're a physician. Uh, if you want to tell your, if you're a patient and you want your physician to uh, receive a visit from us, you can have them contact either ourselves or uh, one of our partners is the Ontario College of Family Physicians, and they would know how to reach them as well. It's it's an incredible support service for a very very burdensome uh, medical profession. Things are getting pretty tough these days, obviously for for general practitioners and for nurse practitioners as well. And uh, this sounds like just a great idea for them to to be able to lean on every now and then to to make sure that they're up to speed on everything. Uh, Tupper, thank you so much for the time today. Continue good luck with uh, the great work you guys are doing at the Center for Effective Practice. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Take care. We'll talk again soon. I'm sure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.